Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 51, The Catcher in the Rye, by J.D. Salinger. A thought was in my head, and I need to tell you, it's too sad I forgot. Life's just a dream, that I've been long ago. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determine whether or not it is worthy of its reputation. As always, I'm Tom Panneries, and I am joined for this trip into New York City and the adventures of Holden Caulfield by the Phoebe to my Holden, Stella. How are you? I can I can get on board with that. <laughs> I should just turn my back at, at, <laughs> upon you and tell you to shut up, <laughs> and then it'll make you really upset. Hey, I am doing well. I'm interested <laughs> to see how this goes and whether people listen, because apparently people don't like this book. <laughs> it's <clears throat> we'll get into that later. It's just that it's it's a weirdly polarizing novel. Like it's just among like people I know who are like adamant about how much they don't like this book. And yet I know a lot of people who like love this book. So, you know, so anyway, yeah, so we are doing, we are doing the catch of the rye. How are you before we even get into the, um, the whole rigmarole about uh, what this book is about? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm okay. Just getting over the holidays of, you know, not being able to see family and, um, you know, it's 2021, but really it still feels like 2020. I, everyone was super pumped to get rid of 2020, but mm-hmm. I think 2020 still has lasting, lingering effects. So I don't know what everyone else was thinking, but we're just, you know, just trying to take it a day at a time, basically. Yeah. January is kind of a hangover anyway, so <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, it's it's been – the last couple of work, weeks of work have been tough. It's just been – it was tough to get in, and then I've just like – it, it this week it's just it feels long you know so mm, yeah all right well this this is not work well it's I mean I guess there's I guess you could define <laughs> it as work but it, it it is fun and um and I know we had a really really good time on our last episode 
And uh, hopefully we can. I don't know. I don't know how we can top that, but we certainly have a novel that is uh, that is worth it. Uh, before I get into the whole uh, bio of J.D. Salinger and the plot of the novel, uh, I always we always do ask the same question of each other, which is, what's your history with The Catcher in the Rye? Yeah, this currently is my third time reading the novel. I'm pretty sure it may have been one of the first probably that I had read in my Rory Gilmore's reading list, mm-hmm. which of course I'm, I'm as of this recording, I have six more to go and I will finish that beast of a list. So I, I'm pretty sure it was one of the first ones. I remember finding it. I, I it's, it's a, a novel that's easy to find in, in different places. Yeah. And I remember getting it from a used bookstore, a pretty nice copy and, and read it. And I think, I mean, I guess we'll talk about this, but I feel like each time I've read it, I've had a different opinion about it. Like even this third time, I felt differently reading it because of all the novels that I read heretofore and also thinking about kind of young adult novels and things like that. And so the first time I read it was just like, okay, let's read it. This classic, got to get it off my list. Second time, I remember bringing it to uh, an adult woman's book club, like more mature women. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was I was bringing the average age down, basically. That's what I'm trying to say, but in a nice way, because they were doing more modern tales. And so they said, you know, what what would you like to do? And I thought, well, we could always do this Catcher in the Rise. I remember doing that. And then, of course, this time that we're reading it. So more. Gosh, I, I, I suppose with the exception of Jane Eyre, probably the most that I've read one of our or maybe one of the plays mm-hmm. like the Julius Caesar, the most that I've I've read one of the stories that we have picked for this show. I would say probably Macbeth is probably if, if I'm thinking about works we've done for this show that I have read the most yeah. Either Macbeth or Fahrenheit 451, but that is That's because I, I was just thinking about the Aeneid. Basically, yeah. anything I would have to do for for work. Yeah, I was going to say because <laughs> both of those, as much as I love both of those, the reason I read them multiple times is because I uh, I taught them. So, um, yeah, this is uh, yeah this God I I don't this might be my fourth reading of this. I'm trying to remember like when how many times I've read this novel. Um I like many 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 American high school <laughs> students in the 1990s um and prior to that was assigned this book in high school. Um I was assigned it in my junior year so I would have been 16 years old. Talk about being the perfect age to first read The Catcher in the Rye. I was aware of the novel prior to that. Um, it was one of those novels that gets name dropped in like per, in popular culture here and there. Uh, you know, either as um, a coming of age novel or mostly because of its role as a controversial novel. You know, the fact that it does get. And I'll get to that and in, into that in the history of the novel. Uh, in that section, but yeah, so I, I, I didn't know what it was about, but I knew it was like a big controversial novel and I knew it was one of the big ones we read junior year. So, um, I read it. I really, really enjoyed it. It was, it was one of the ones from junior year that really stood out to me. And then, uh, at some point in college, I got my hands on my own copy, which I still have. It's a, it is, it's not a nice, beautiful copy. It is a 
mass market paperback copy. The cover is entirely white with a little like rainbow stripe thing going out, uh, going down on the uh, upper left hand corner. And it just is the catcher in the rye and black type with JD Salinger on it. It is just like incredibly, you know, just. <laughs> um, very, very plain. Uh, the copies that we had in school, I remember very, very vividly were paperback copies and they were that like red faux red leather look with the catcher, the Ryan gold lettering on it, which is, um, if you've ever encountered, which was like for years was the, was the, um, the paperback version of the book. So, um, it's very rare that I actually talk about the cover art. Of a book, I don't think we we tend not to bring it up mainly because books like books that are popular have been around for a while go through many many um, iterations of their covers. You know, mm-hmm. um, you like you mentioned <clears throat> we've done Frankenstein, we've done Jane Eyre, and those 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 books if you pick them up off the stand um, are not in don't have their original covers on them mainly because they probably weren't didn't have cover illustrations, but uh, but. I don't know. The other other book that I can I can think of that we would be like, you know, let's talk about the cover of the book probably would be The Great Gatsby. But um, anyway, that aside. But yeah, yeah, my cover. I mean, since you yeah. brought it up, mine is. I would almost say it's abstract, but not. Mm, I mean, it leans toward abstract, mm-hmm. but it it's a hardcover, so it's a, a carousel horse. horse. Uh, in, which is all red mm-hmm. and then in front of a park scene that is just pencil. I mean, it's it's rather simplistic. Uh, and of course, you wouldn't really understand the significance of yeah. that. I mean, that's kind of like, I don't know if you would consider that the climax of the novel or not. Uh, but yeah, so. more. I, it's it's toward the end. It's it's one of the more climactic moments of the novel. Um, I want to say that um yeah that is the actual first edition well that is the hardcover edition like all the way from back from the first edition uh image looking at a uh illustration of it on wikipedia so that was the all right um yeah and then i I read it again in college just um for the heck of it uh mainly because i remember having a classmate who was a friend who was really really into salinger and um i was like, you know, I kind of shrugged. I was like, oh, really? And then I, I, so I ended up reading, um, nine stories and Franny and Zoe, which are two of his other books. Um, Franny and Zoe was all right. Um, nine stories has a couple of really good short <laughs> stories in it. Um, and then, and then Catcher. And I, re- I read it at some, reread it at some point a few years ago. Uh, I think while I was teaching, um, I might have I might have read it. I'm trying to remember. Did I read it? I might have read it in summer school while I was pa- to pass the time while I was teaching summer school because uh, it just we just happened to have a copy there. And then um, and then I read it for this. Yeah, I think this is my fourth. There might have been another time, my fourth or fifth. Uh, and and it's one of those novels that when we get to it, what we could talk about how as you age and get experience, does your opinion change on the book you know does this grow Mm -hmm. with you do you still feel the same way about it as you did if you read it like i did at 16 etc so all right um so i'm gonna get into the background on the author Uh, a lot of the source of this biography is from biography.com and jerome david salinger 
was born on January 1st, 1919 in New York City. His father was Jewish, his mother was Scottish, and this was a bit controversial at the time. So controversial, in fact, that his mother's heritage was hidden from him and the family, and he didn't know it until he was 14 years old. As a youth, he wasn't much of a student. He made more than one attempt at college. One of these attempts, in which he took night classes at Columbia University, was responsible for his writing career, as one of his professors was Whit Burnett, who was also the editor of Story Magazine. Burnett saw talent in the young Salinger and gave him his big break. Just as this was happening, and some of Salinger's stories were being published, some of which saw released in a posthumous book called Early Stories in 2014, Salinger was drafted into the Army, and he would serve in World War II from 1942 to 1944. He saw action on Utah Beach as part of the Normandy invasion on June 6, 1944, as well as in the Battle of the Bulge. And it was during this time in the military that he began writing chapters of a novel about a character named Holden Caulfield. After the war, Salinger was hospitalized from what was then referred to as a nervous breakdown, and during the time of his treatment, he had a short marriage to a German woman named Sylvia. He would marry again in 1955 to Claire Douglas, and they would have two children, Margaret and Matthew, the latter of whom had an acting career, mostly in the 1980s and early 1990s, and who is best known for playing an Alpha Beta in Revenge of the Nerds, and Captain America in the 1990 film directed by Albert Pune. Back to J.D. Salinger, he would have a number of short stories and novellas published in publications like The New Yorker between 1940 and 1959, many of which are collected. Nine Stories was released in 1953. It includes A Perfect Day for Banana Fish and uh, For Esme with Love and Squalor, which is two of his most famous stories. Franny and Zoe was published in 1961, and Raise High the Roof Beam Carpenters and Seymour, an introduction, uh, a book with two novellas in it, like Franny and Zoe, was published in 1963. The Catcher in the Rye, which is published in 1951, is his only full-length novel. Salinger's last published work was a novella named Hapworth 16-1924, and that was published in the June 19, 1965 issue of The New Yorker. The biggest reason that Salinger was never published after 1965, despite living all the way until 2010, was that he completely withdrew from public life and was a notorious recluse for the better part of half a century. And by many accounts, he wasn't exactly a nice recluse. At any rate, yeah, I just I, I was trying to find it's hard this it's hard to distill this guy's bio down. There have been literal documentaries made, books written about him, and by many accounts, and I, I really can't verify them, he was not a very nice person. He was kind of a just this crank who lived alone, and, and it was um, you know just very ordinary um, and and even worse. So um, not Hunter S. Thompson level of uh, kind of, you know, cranky, but, but he definitely, uh, he did not have the best reputation. Mm. At any rate, he had a number of issues in his personal life after he moved to Cornish, New Hampshire, which is where he lived until his death. Claire Douglas divorced him in 1966. In 1972, he began a 10-month relationship with an 18-year-old college freshman named Joyce Maynard. 
Maynard would actually go on to be a best-selling novelist in her own right. She wrote, most notably, the 1992 novel To Die For, which was adapted into a 1995 film directed by Gus Van Sant and starring Nicole Kidman, Matt Dillon, and Joaquin Phoenix. She also, uh, Maynard also won the, wrote the bestseller Labor Day, and she revealed her relationship with Salinger in her memoir, At Home in the World, in the late 90s. Um, there's an essay that she wrote for Vogue in 2018 that is worth reading, uh, right around the time, uh, this was published right around the time the Me Too movement was taking hold or had taken hold. Uh, and it's worth reading because it's about her relationship with J.D. Salinger, um, and kind of condenses the relationship and the reaction to her book into a very taut essay. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, I don't want to get too far off topic though. So what I'll do is I will finish up my look at his biography by mentioning that he married a third time before his death. His third wife is named Colleen O'Neill and she and Matt Salinger are in charge of his estate. Uh, Matt Salinger in an interview from a couple of years ago mentioned that his father had an enormous amount of unpublished work and that the family is working on getting it ready for what they can for publication, but it is a long process. Now, our novel, The Catcher in the Rye, this thing has a history all its own. The title comes from a conversation that Holden has with his younger sister, Phoebe, and is actually a misinterpretation of a Robert Burns poem titled Coming Through the Rye. The poem was written in 1782, although it's believed that Burns didn't create the poem. It was simply offering an interpretation to a well-known folk song. It was eventually put to the melody of a Scottish minstrel tune, Come and Fray the Town. That was a terrible attempt at a brogue. Um, here is a sample of Coming Through the Rye. is actually quite bawdy and sexually explicit, and it's ironic considering the way Holden employs his misinterpreted reference in the novel. I'm sure we'll get to that point in both the summary and the discussion. The novel, like I said in my quick bio of Salinger, was something that he was working on during his time in the service, and Holden Caulfield, along with an early version of the character Sally Hayes, appear in a couple of his short stories that were published in the 1940s. Salinger also had a 90-page manuscript about Holden Caulfield accepted for publication by The New Yorker at one point, but he withdrew it. The Catcher in the Rye, in the form which we now know, was published in 1951 and garnered praise upon publication, especially for its narrative voice, which captured Holden Caulfield's ex existential teen angst. Is there any other kind? Salinger was also praised for his portrayal of New York City, which is where the bulk of the novel takes place. Catcher has been a perennial bestseller. In fact, it was recently on the Washington Post paperback bestseller list, um, I noticed the other day, uh, and is often cited as an influential work. 
It is not without controversy, however. First, it has an unfortunate history of being associated with infamous crimes, the most notorious of which was the murder of John Lennon by Mark David Chapman on December 8, 1980. Chapman said that he was inspired by the book and even had written, This is my statement inside his copy. John Hinckley, who shot Ronald Reagan in 1981, was an admirer of Chapman, and a copy of The Catcher in the Rye was found in his hotel room, but its role as an influence in the attempt at the assassination was dismissed because Hinckley read a variety of books and not just Catcher. Finally, Robert John Bardo had a copy of Catcher in his possession when he murdered actress Rebecca Schaefer in 1989. Her murder would actually help contribute to uh, what became California's first anti-stalker laws in the early 1990s. Our novel here has also been either challenged or banned in schools since its publication as early as 1960, when a teacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was fired for teaching the book to juniors. In 1963, a delegation of parents in Columbus, Ohio, demanded that Catcher, Brave New World, and To Kill a Mockingbird be removed from schools for being, quote, anti-white and obscene. I'm assuming the anti-white was a measure against To Kill a Mockingbird, but, like, you have to just like sit there and, and shake your head whenever anybody, whenever you see that in an argument for censor, you're just like, so, so you're racist. Like, it's just, uh, so anyway, this was denied, by the way. The book's use of foul language, as well as a couple of scenes that deal with the mature, with mature themes, is what often causes it to get challenged. My sources for this, by the way, are the book 100 Banned Books. Um, as well as the website for the American Library Association. The list of all the challenges to the catcher in the rye is so incredibly long, it would take me way too long to just go through all of them, especially since they're all essentially for the same thing, the language and some of the more explicit passages. But here are a few. 1975, Sellins Grove, Pennsylvania, actually removed by a 5-4 to four vote by the Board of Education, but then it was re later reinstated because the board didn't know that it was supposed to have a two-thirds majority to remove the book, and therefore the vote was illegal. 1977, challenged in Pittsgrove, New Jersey, after months of controversy, the school board ruled that the AP students could read it, but parents had right of refusal. In 1988, it was challenged at Linton Stockton, Indiana High School because the book is, quote, blasphemous, contains profanity, and undermines morality. In 1997, it was removed from the required reading curriculum in Marysville, California, because of profanity and sexual situations. The superintendent is quoted as saying he removed it to, quote, get it out of the way so that we don't have polarization over a book. <sighs> These people make more than us. <laughs> Some of them have doctorate sure. degrees. Since the 1990s, Catcher has been challenged in school districts in South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, and Montana, the most recent challenge coming in 2009. In fact, Catcher in the Rye was, on, was number six on the ALA's top 10 banned or challenged books that year, 2009, but timed To Kill a Mockingbird at number four, The Twilight Saga at number five, which I don't think actually counts as literature, and ahead of Jody Picoult's My Sister's Keeper at seven. That's banned. Um, banned or challenged. 
So the ALA. Wow, my sister's yeah, keeper. Yeah, which um, apparently had homosexual context in it, content in it, or something like that. I read that book years ago, actually. I did too. I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember it enough, and I'd have to look it up. But yeah. you know. I don't know if I'd necessarily, maybe in an ethics course, I would use that, uh, just given yeah. the whole plot. But otherwise, I don't know why I would. I'd have, have to, on a curriculum, anyways. But I'm just like, why is? That I'd have to end? look up how it ended oh, up on a curriculum. I would say it's probably one of it. It's either one of two things. One, it was in a library in a school because sometimes that's how these qualify. Oh. Like you know, they they're not on a curriculum, but they're in a library, or um, it was like alternate reading choice list or some something like you know where a student chose it i can't imagine somebody actually teaching that book as a as a full like a whole class novel um enjoy like i said i remember kind of enjoying it except for parts of it i was like oh this is a little too much for me but but yeah so i'll have to look that up that's gonna end up in the show at some point aren't isn't it um anyway uh so yeah i don't know it's like one of those things I don't want to read that again. I was so upset. By I the think ending, that's what so. I think that's what I remember. I remember like liking the book up to a point, and then there was the ending, and I was like, 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 yeah, it was terrible. Like everything was going her way. Stephen King level of she like, what kind the of hell a is this? Figure, and yeah. then she was killed. Exactly, like, exactly. It was just like, me. are you, are you Boy, kidding? Me? Yes. I I, now, now I'm remembering yeah. it. Don't know why it was Challenge Your Band, but then again, like, as we saw with Drama by Randy Selgmeyer, like, you have two boys so, so much as, like, anything. If packed. anyone, that's why I'm warning at work, too. If there's anything someone can complain about, yeah. they will do it. Someone will find something to complain about. Yeah, like, you know, the two, because it was, like, the most chaste little kiss romance thing in drama, and it was, like, immorality. And you're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Ah, anyway, <laughs> but we'll, um, uh, one last thing. So that, that was, that was it as far as challenges are concerned. I'm sure that it will pop up at some point or another in, in the future. Um, it seems to be below the list, um, in recent years, mainly because, and, and this is, this is not saying this is right, but it seems that if you look at the ALA's list of top 10 banned books, like from year to year over the last few years, if a book has to do with, um, anything that has to do with anything positive about transgender individuals, um, you know, or, or, or homosexuality or just sexuality in general, um, you know, gender fluidity, whatever gender identity, that seems to be the thing that people are after these days as far as, so you have like books like, um, I am jazz by jazz Jennings and things like that are the top spots because, you know, I don't know people, what sort of world do they live in? Do they live in some sort of like closed society where those people don't exist (sighs) it's a whole it's a whole other discussion of of like the really far right and this whole the whole like concern women the concern people of america and the like the moral majority moral majority is probably one of the best ways to put it and this sort of crusade to to just downplay anything that has to do with like um diversity in literature and in classrooms and things like that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's pathetic when you think about it, like, you know, mm. so, 
because um, they, because you know, because they, because you, you and I have both seen the uh, in the news and things that just the rhetoric of them just thinking there's like a, a dehumanization of anybody who is, you know, non-binary, transgender, gender fluid, like, like you know, who is not of the classic male and or female gender and we see you know and it has and and so therefore they you know because they want to dehumanize them the idea that you would read a book where a character is you know that that teaches you about transgender characters or whatever um to them that's like why would you do that to children and it's it's just back to the cursing in this book um (laughs) no um I guess that's going to Yeah, be it might, you know, it might be. Sort of uh, years ago, it. I did a pop culture affidavit episode about banned books, but I, I kind of kept it to what, like, Banned Books Week was. Um, and it was, God, that was, I was still living in my old house. So it was 2013, 2014 or so, you know, so it was that very long ago. Um, it might be worth, a, it might be worth a look as a, as a special on one of our 10 specials on, you know, unless we do Jude the Obscure or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway. So at the top of the episode, um, Stella mentioned that like, you everybody hates this book. And I, uh, I was saying that, um, I know a few people who really don't like this book. I know so many get their opinions then I really didn't. Um, but what I did was put out a Google form that I put over Twitter. We got three responses for it. And the question, it was basically, I wanted to know like why people don't like this book. Um, and mm-hmm. I didn't know if it was, you know, um, and I, I'm sure if I went to various places, I'd get various answers. But we did ask for listener opinions because it can be quite polarizing. The question was, the title of the form, the Google form we had people fill out was, why don't you like The Catcher in the Rye? And I asked, on the February episode of our podcast, Required Reading with Tom and Stella, we will be discussing The Catcher in the Rye. We wanted to take some of our discussion time to explore people's dislike of the novel. Please explain respond with why you don't like it all responses will be anonymous and some will be read on the show <laughs> so we got three <laughs> you know you, you try right. um here's what uh, our, our listeners had to say so the first one was holden caulfield is divisive i guess i like the novel myself okay um the second one was my love or disdain for the novel depends on the point in my life when i have read it when I was when I read it as a young man i hated holden and thought he was a melodramatic narcissistic jerk when I reread the novel in college, I felt a bit more connected to his sense of isolation. When I taught high school and saw the novel from that POV, I loved Holden because he reminded me of the many students who needed the most help. Mm-hmm. And then the third one um, is when I was in junior high, I was shown the anime film Ghost in the Shell and the subsequent series Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. One of the antagonists for the series is known as the Laughing Man and calls for numerous Salinger references, including The Catcher in the Rye. Having loved the series, it made me curious about the book that played such a big role. Luckily, the friend who introduced me to the anime series also had a copy of the book. In a nice bit of foreshadow for what I was in for, the friend once attempted to read it and failed to complete it, as did his brother. While I did read the book in its entirety, I found it a little dull. Holden himself struck me as not only obnoxious, but also just not very interesting to follow. My memory is a little fuzzy because this was 2002 to 2004. The book is infamous and its reputation precedes it, but at the time, I was unaware about the details and what people thought about it. I still don't know fully, but I get the sense that many view it as overrated, which I did at the time. 
That's mm-hmm. kind of it. Holden Caulfield is a really, really obnoxious person. I swear to God he was. Salinger's writing itself never struck a chord with me as interesting either. Some writers simply write so beautiful that it halts you, and Salinger seems far from it to the teenage me. Maybe I should revisit it or his other work someday, but the overwhelming sense of obnoxiousness being dull and uninteresting supersedes any of the content. So those were three, and I'm sure we would have gotten similar responses. Um, you know, sometimes it's Holden, sometimes it's the book. Um, I think there's some good points we can talk about later about the time in which you read it, the context in which you read it. I find that interesting. No, go ahead. Sorry go ahead, to interrupt, but just how some of them are able to separate Holden from the mm. book. Yeah. Because to me, the book is Holden. Yeah. I mean, it's him. <laughs> so for, for me to like try to suss out, you know, where does the where does Holden <sighs> begin and, and end and the book begin and end it would be really difficult for me to do that. So I find that I, I would like yeah. to talk to that Although person I, further or whoever answered yeah. that and, and see like, hey, what can you explain that yeah. more? You know, what do you mean? What do you see there? So that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe. So so this is something we'll talk about later because it's on one of our questions, the idea of like this kind of being a template for different things or an archetype for different things and these themes of adolescent alienation and stuff. Um, perhaps that is what they thought was the positive of the book. You know, the, the idea that that was shown really well, but Holden himself was, you know, so maybe they were kind of separating the issue from the person. Yeah. I, I always do joke with my students that Holden Caulfield is the second most whiny teenage male character in all of literature. Who's the first? Romeo. <laughs> oh, Rosalind! Oh, like, Julia! Why is he pausing for dramatic effect? Is like, I should have known. Oh my gosh. You, oh man, you and that. I guess Check we need to do that sometimes, frankly. idiot. God, she, her, her, the, the, it's the, the, the life hasn't drained from her face. She's still pink. It's no, she's waking up, you moron. Oh, oh my gosh. Anyway. Someone, I, I hope people take a drink every time Romeo and Juliet is mentioned He's on this point, uh, this show. little brat. Um, all right. So here is the plot synopsis. Oh, wow. The present of our story is 1950. Our protagonist and narrator is Holden Caulfield, a 16-year-old boy who, up until the Christmas of the previous year, was a student at Pensy Prep, a boarding school in Pennsylvania. The novel takes place entirely in flashback, as Holden is telling all of this to a doctor who is treating him in an institution in California. He is there because that previous Christmas, he had what was called a nervous breakdown. The flashback begins with his last day at Pensy Prep, right as the school was set to get a to go on their winter break, and it's also right after Holden has been notified that he has failed all of his classes except for English and is therefore flunked out. It's not the first prep school he has either failed out or dropped out of, by the way, and when we first encounter him in the flashback on his last day at Pensy, he's already had a terrible day. He accidentally left the fencing team's equipment on the subway and that caused them to forfeit their match. He goes and sees his history teacher, Mr. Spencer, and then he heads back to his dorm room. He first runs into Ackley, who's one of the less popular guys in the room, mostly because he's socially inept and has terrible manners, like gross, terrible manners. 
Yeah, it's it's yeah. Ackley's gross. Um, we then meet Holden's roommate Stradlater, <laughs> who is a good-looking guy but a womanizer, and who asks Holden to write a paper for him. Holden reluctantly agrees to do so, and then gets upset that Stradlater is getting ready to go out on a date with Jane Gallagher, a girl Holden has known since they were kids. And the memory of her that keeps coming up whenever he and Stradlater are talking about um, Jane Gallagher is that she, whenever she used to play checkers, she would keep all of her kings on the back row. And Holden's like, you know, ask her if she if she does that. And Stradlater's like, what? Um, so anyway, Holden writes the paper. And then he goes and hangs out with Ackley and Malbroussard. Afterward, when he's back in the dorm and Stradlater returns, Stradlater is upset to find that instead of writing a paper about a picnic table, or they think that's what he was supposed to write about, Holden has written a very deep and personal paper about his dead brother, Allie's baseball glove. Allie's death from leukemia deeply affected him, and he's incredibly sentimental about him and that baseball glove. The conversation then shifts to Stradlater's date with Jane, and when Stradlater won't say whether or not he slept with her, Holden punches him. Stradlater easily beats up his roommate and leaves Holden with a bloody nose before heading back out. Holden then heads to Ackley's room and after a while decides to pack his things and leave Pensy for New York early, figuring he can spend a few days in the city and and hold up in a hotel before his parents get the expulsion letter, which will be that Wednesday. On the train bound from New York, Holden sits next to the mom of another student and he lies to her, saying that her son's a great guy, even though she thinks her son's obnoxious. Then he takes a cab to the Edmont Hotel along the way, asking the driver where the ducks in Central Park go in the winter. This is a recurring question. It comes out repeatedly throughout the novel. And another repeating image is the red hunting cap with flaps that Holden is wearing throughout the book, a cap that is one of the novel's major symbols. So Holden checks into the hotel and then he hangs out at the bar. He has a conversation with three women who are tourists, but they annoy him. So he heads to a nightclub down in the village named Ernie's where he thinks he can get a drink. He leaves prematurely after he spots an old girlfriend of his brother, D.B., who is older and a screenwriter living out in Hollywood, which kind of explains why in present day he's out in California. Later on, he'll mention that D.B. visits him in, in the uh, institution. He returns to the hotel, and when he, when heading back up to his room, Maurice, the elevator operator, tells him that he, Holden can, that he can send up a prostitute for him. Holden takes him up on the author, and soon after, a prostitute named Sunny shows up. Holden gets cold feet when she begins to take off her clothes, and he tells her that he just wants to talk to her, and this makes her angry. Holden pays her what he was told she cost, but she insists that he owes her double and leaves. Sunny returns soon after with Maurice, and they rough up Holden, and they take some of his money. The next morning, Holden calls up an old friend of his, Sally Hayes, and they agree to see a play. Before they meet up, he drops his bags off at Grand Central Station and then goes to a diner where, while eating, he has a conversation with a few nuns who are collecting money from a charity. And then he goes into a record store and finds a 45 of the song Little Shirley Beans for his sister, Phoebe. I will pause here for a moment to note that there are a number of times where during these various episodes, Holden monologues about something uh, in a stream of consciousness manner, because this entire narration is stream of consciousness. So he'll go off on quite a few tangents and then eventually come back to the events of the 48 hours or so that this book takes place over. 
Some of the things he talks about include memories of a particular person, thoughts on the phoniness of the adult world, his frustration with his parents and girls. And we'll get a little more specific about these in our discussion. So I'm just going to try to stick to the events of the book for the sake of brevity. So as Holden is wandering around Midtown and Central Park, he comes across a kid singing If a Body Catch a Body Coming Through the Rye, which is a misquote of the Robert Burns poem I mentioned in the background info. The correct phrasing is If a Body Meet a Body Coming Through the Rye. He also heads to the Museum of Natural History, but decides against going inside and instead heads down to the Biltmore early. He's gotten tickets for I Know My Love, a play starring Alfred Lunt and his wife, Lynn Fontaine. And this, by the way, is what places the flashback around Christmas 1949, because according to the Internet Broadway database, I Know My Love opened on November 2nd, 1949 and closed on June 3rd, 1950. Not that it matters, but I just was like, OK, I have a year this takes place. So all the flashbacks take place in, in uh, Christmas 1949. Holden really doesn't care for the lunts, as he calls them, um, or the play, but he goes along with it and afterwards takes Sally to skate at Rockefeller Center. The date ends abruptly after Sally gets annoyed at Holden when he's ranting about society, and then his efforts to apologize annoy her even more because he asks her to run away with him to New England. Holden then meets up with an old schoolmate, Carl Luce, at the Wicker Bar. Carl, who is now a college student, is annoyed by almost immediately by Holden, and uh, Holden suspects that Carl's gay. And after Holden repeatedly badgers him about his sex life, Carl suggests that Holden see a psychiatrist. Holden then gets drunk, eventually drunk dials Sally, which, well, that goes about as well as you would expect it. And then he then heads over to Central Park to see if he can spot the ducks. And after breaking Phoebe's record, decides to head to his parents' apartment. He sneaks into the apartment and with his parents being out for the night, wakes up Phoebe, who is really the only person he feels that he can be honest with. Phoebe quickly figures out that Holden has been expelled. And while she is upset about his cynicism and harsh view of the world, he provides the novel with its title, telling her a fantasy that he has about being the person catching kids as they run through a rye field before falling off a cliff. Holden gives Phoebe his hunting cap. Then Mr. and Mrs. Caulfield return home, and Holden sneaks out without them catching them there, eventually ending up at the apartment of Mr. Antolini, his former English teacher. Antolini and his wife give him a place to crash on their couch, and Holden goes to sleep. He's then woken up by Mr. Antolini patting his head. Holden thinks this is a sexual advance, and he flips out. He gets the things together, and he leaves. At this point, it's pretty light out, and feeling even more desperate and despondent, he decides that he's going to leave New York and head out west to live as a recluse in a log cabin. But first he heads to Phoebe's school so that he can tell her about this at lunchtime. While there, he sees that someone has written F*** you on one of the walls and becomes upset with little kids, possibly seeing those words and their innocence being tarnished. He leaves a message for Phoebe, and they meet on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art later in the day. Phoebe shows up holding her suitcase, saying that she is going to go with him. He won't let her go with him, and that makes her upset. He decides to cheer her up by letting her skip school with him and takes her to the Central Park Zoo. She stops being mad at him when he buys her a ticket for the carousel. Before she goes in the carousel, Phoebe gives Holden his hat back, and as he watches her ride the carousel, it begins to rain. 
The final chapter returns to the present with Holden talking to the unnamed psychologist. He mentions that sometime after that, he, quote, got sick and had to come out to California. He hints at going to another school next fall, but he's really not interested in that even if it's a topic of conversations with another psychoanalyst. He also mentions that D.B. and his girlfriend, an actress who is in his new movie, have come to visit. And Holden ends the novel by saying, Anyway, one time when she went to the ladies' room way the hell down in the other wing, D.B. asked what I thought about all this stuff I just finished telling you about. I didn't know what the hell to say. If you want to know the truth, I don't know what I think about it. I'm sorry I told so many people about it. About all I know is, I sort of miss everybody I told about. Even old Stradlater and Ackley, for instance. I think I even miss that goddamn Maurice. It's funny. Don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. And that is The Catcher in the Rye. So we're going to start a discussion, and we're going to start a discussion with a question we always ask at the beginning of our discussions of these novels, etc., Stella, did you like it? <laughs> I did like it. I, I think I, I think probably my first time reading it, I thought that it was fine. I don't know if I necessarily saw whether it was worth its reputation or perhaps, you know, I, I, I did see its controversial mm. reputation, but didn't really see like how it could be touted as this this great novel and then the second time i'm not sure what my feelings were i may have kind of coasted through that since it was for book club mm -hmm. but i took my time with this one and i i had different feelings when i was reading it i still don't think it's the best novel mm -hmm. you know ever written if i were to you know point that out to somebody but i do feel like it's worthwhile and i can totally see why people would be annoyed with yeah Holden, you know not like him and I, I can see how some of these scenes are troubling though i'm also thinking wow you had a problem with the language but think about all the language in books <laughs> nowadays um yeah so i i did enjoy it yes yeah um good i'm, I'm glad I, I i enjoyed this too um this is a novel that um I've never not enjoyed, but it, the way I've viewed it has changed. And I think, like I said, I was assigned this in my junior year of high school. That was 1993, 94. And then by the end of my junior year, I, um, uh, you know, uh, I discovered, you know, Green Day hit. And it was like, basically, I, I, I was the target audience for this book. I was a bored, mm -hmm kind of lonely 16 year old nerdy kid who guy who was a watching way too many um 80s teen movies anyway like the breakfast club on repeat to the point where i can recite the breakfast club and then this novel comes out and i'm listening to like then i start listening to punk rock it's just the novel to me at 16 was punk it was punk rock and i was like and and it's it really spoke to me. It didn't speak to me in a way that I was like, you know, I, I didn't start like, you know, rebelling in any way. But the the idea of um this adolescent trap in the world just being just really just the disdain for the world because of the way that things had um 
you know, things were so much different than you thought you were. That loss of innocence really spoke to me. Um, as I got older and reread it, there were times where I did start to believe that, you know, Holden gets annoying, especially because of the way he seems just so like, you want to tell him to kind of get over it in the sense of like, you know, yeah, the adult world is really, you know, it's not pretty, you know, and, and he just seems so like upset by that. But kind of like the one commenter we had who said, when I taught high school and saw the novel from that point of view, I loved Holden because he reminded me of many of the students who need the most help. And this time around, you know, this is, it's the, it's the second or third, second time or so I've read it while being a teacher. And this time around, like, I was, I think I was, because I was able to take it off its pedestal after so many years of, of hearing people complain about it. Um, and other YA novels coming around and having read some of those, and we'll get to that. But taking it off its pedestal and really looking for it, I, I really started to feel bad for him. Like, I was, it was, it's a very sad book in a way that I didn't expect to feel as sad as I did after the end of it. I, I felt his anger and I understood his anger. And even in middle age, I'm, I, there are times where I totally agree with him, but by the end, I'm like, I feel bad for the kid, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, I certainly agree. I mean, the first two times that I read it, I was not a teacher. Yeah. And so I think that's another reason why this third time hit me. And I think perhaps people struggling with this. I mean, this is another character that I think you have to read it with a certain level and perhaps a higher level mm -hmm. of empathy. And we've been trained more now to really empathize with, the people that aren't the, you know, the cisgendered white, heterosexual, heterosexual middle class, uh, middle, upper male, class male, really, yeah. who is also in the upper echelon mm -hmm. of society. But he's got he's got some mental health mm -hmm. issues. And I think maybe people like skate over that with with what they're reading. And, and I think you've got to look past his. I don't know, his resume mm -hmm. in order to to get to this, who this guy is. And so perhaps some of the people who don't like him and find him annoying, which I certainly do find him annoying. It is, you have to train yourself to be like, oh man, what is the root cause of all of this? You know, what's he going through that I can't really identify with, but I understand he's going through something. So it, we have another empathy trial yeah. here. <laughs> it's just one, we always try to look for someone who's not this, but it's a good one. Is this our first sort of mental health novel that we've covered here um, on the show? I, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure. I can, I'm pretty sure that Fun Home, Fun, fun Home is home Fun Home is coming extent. to mind. Um, yeah. especially with her father. Yeah, I, I'm mm -hmm. sure if we if we went back, there might be a, a few others that we um that that kind of bleed in in and out of that. You know, and and it's mental health. It's grief. You know, we'll we'll because mm -hmm. we'll, 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 we'll talk about Allie and the fact that Holden's parents. Yeah. You know, it's one thing that you send your kid to boarding school because of, of a boarding school like Pensy, which is, you know, which is supposed to be based on like Exeter and like other like really Tony prep schools in like New England. In fact, he mentions that one of the ones he went to was up in New England. So it was supposed to be that's what Salinger is going for, that type of school. So, yeah, your Georgetown preps and in Baltimore, there was um 
the, the I, I went to Loyola College in Baltimore, now Loyola University in Baltimore, but um, there were two there were two prep schools up in the Balt, greater Baltimore area that tended to feed into there. One was called Calvert Hall, the other one was um, was Loyola Prep, and then around here in Charlottesville we have like Woodbury Forest. Um, which is up in, in orange, you have, you know, so, so there are those type of schools where, yeah, uh, it's really expensive to attend and, and yeah, and you get this sort of, that sort of upper crust, but I get the feeling that they kind of dump him there because for whatever reason, it's just like he avoids them, you know, like he, he mm. rarely has a good thing to say about his parents. And I have a feeling that he's kind of a, he's kind of a pain I mean, I, I'm sure he's a pain in the butt anyway, but I mean, I, in, in not a pain in the butt in that he's annoying, a pain in the butt is like, it's something that, that he, out of sight, out of mind, you know? And, and that's, that's, yeah. that's very sad. So, um, now the first question, and this is, this is really, really important, um, because it is a stream of consciousness book. And this is one of the things that makes this book, as famous as it is, because even though this, I think this type of storytelling is probably around Salinger, like really, really brought it to, brought it to the forefront. It's, it's one of those things that, that is notable because it's this attempt at a, at a teenage voice and it's going like, and Holden's like going all over the place throughout the book, but he's, he's speaking in like a teen vernacular uh, for the time he's trying to use slang, whether or not he's successful is, is up for debate. I had to Google yeah, some yeah. of the words because I'm like, what is this? Flit? Is yeah. this what I think it is? And there was something yeah. else that I was like, I don't yeah. understand. Okay, yeah. now I get it. Um, Thank you. But, but like I said, <laughs> so, having read, yeah. having watched many, many teen movies back in the day, um, the whole teenage slang being used, it's like, it's almost like I could always roll with it even if I didn't really, if I found that particular slang kind of lame. But the question is, this this book really does rely on Holden being this narrator. Can we trust him? Should we trust him? Yeah. Uh, gosh. Yeah, because, I mean, think about this being a memoir mm -hmm. and, and what you do with him. So this is what I think, and it's going to sound weird, so I'll try to explain it. I trust him, but I do not believe him. So I trust that how he perceives things is how he perceives them. Like I'm, I'm going out there. He really believes the world is full of phonies. He feels like Ackley is a really disgusting guy and that Stradwater, mm -hmm. you know, is really puffed up over himself and, you know, he gets upset and he perceives that maybe Antolini was making some sort of sexual advance mm -hmm. towards him. But I don't necessarily believe that that is actual fact. And what has happened. I think that's just his perspective on what has happened. But I think a lot of it is skewed because the, the one reason why I don't believe him is just that he doesn't like anybody. <laughs> so if there was like one person that he liked, I could, you know, kind of get on board with because it even begins, you know, the teachers, it always starts off pretty good. And then like really quickly, it turns that, you know, he's got all these negative things to say. So I believe in his mind that this is ev everything is true to him him and what he's encountering but i don't believe like in the i don't know in like the world view that this is actually accurate 
So <laughs> that's what I have to say about it. I don't know if that makes sense. Hopefully I explained mm, myself well. That makes sense because it was pretty much this, a similar answer to what I was going to give to the question too. Okay. That I don't think he's lying to us. I don't think he's glorifying mm-hmm. himself. I don't think he's being self-aggrandizing. I think he is being honest, but at the same time, he yeah, you're right. His perspective is skewed. So we have we take him at his word, but with a bit of skepticism because like you you do wonder like is this exactly how it happened? Um, he right. because like you know there's there's points at which like his his ego definitely shows and takes over. But again, like I don't think he's setting out to be dishonest, and and I do mm-hmm. trust him as trying to be an honest person here because he. Um, well, I, I, because I, I, I trust that he seems to be a good person, and that's the thing. Like he mm-hmm. has a moral compass, mm-hmm. and some of the other characters in the story don't. And and when he's up against those people, we can see that contrast. So so the, the idea that he would be telling the truth as he sees it makes total sense. So, mm-hmm. um, now. I had mentioned before we asked the question, we were talking a little bit about like the slang and, and the tone and the manner of speaking. Is that a strength of the narration? Is it a hindrance? You know, how, how does how does the way he uses slang and has this sort of teen vernacular, so to speak, um, affect the uh, affect his narration? As far as I know, I would say and I say that because. I I didn't live back in the 50s, but it gives, I think, an authentic feel to it. I think it would be easier for me to judge if we were to read it and it were time displaced now and to see what the vernacular would do and whether does it seem like, you know, this man is writing this Mm -hmm. kid or not. So for me, it just adds, I think, a level of authenticity that it's it's a kid that we're following. He's 16 years old. He's going to uh, say those things and, and speak in this particular way. And, and they will have certain idioms and, and specific words to use at that time. So for, yeah, that's what I would say about that. Yeah. I, I didn't do enough research to know whether or not Salinger was, did some research into how the kids were talking or if he made the stuff up. Um, I remember, uh, this um, I, I distinctly remember it was I think it was either one of the featurettes or the doc or the commentary, the director's commentary on the movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, Heather's. Um, they were if you've ever if you're familiar with that movie, they use a lot of slang that was not um, that was not 80 slang. They made it up and they did that. They did oh, it deliberately. Okay. Because they knew that if they were using too much of the then current 80s vernacular teen speak, the movie would look incredibly more dated than a movie, you know. And so they, so they came up with their own way of having the kids do their slang, which was a variation on what was mm. already being said. So. So that it would be. Timeless. Yeah, or, or, an, or an effort to make it more timeless, okay. yeah. As, Okay, so you can watch Heather's now, and you won't be turned off. Like this is so. Weird. I think you might be because of the way they because the, of the way they speak and stuff, but um, but also I think that uh, 
but granted, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a good opinion on that. I'm not good for an opinion on that because I love that movie and I've seen it so many times. Um, it mm. looks 1989, so <laughs> you know, <laughs> as it was, mm-hmm. but it does have a sort of, it holds up incredibly well. I will say that it, it holds gotcha. up way better than say, um, can't buy me love or some of uh, some of the other just kind of B-list teen movies of the 80s. So. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like it y- with you where it's like, it's either a time capsule of the time or I just, I just kind of accept it after a while. Like this is the way this kid talks. And I, even then I can't tell if, <laughs> and, and this is funny. It's just kind of occurred to me. Like, I don't even know if any of the other characters tend to talk like that. He might be talking like that because he's so insecure that he's trying to make himself sound cool. And that actually works mm-hmm. on some level as far as the character is concerned. Like, you know, somebody who is that like that or that immature, that insecure um, might try to affect a type of dialect or language like that because they think it might make them seem more, I don't know, cool or authoritative or whatever you want to whatever you want to say. So um, it gets annoying from time to time. I will I will admit that. Like, you know, um, but, but for the most part, um, you know, it's, I I find it, um, I, I, I do find him obnoxious from time to time, but at the same time, I'm like, he's a 16 year old boy. Yeah. (laughs) Like I am 100% sure I was obnoxious AF when I was 16 years old. (laughs) You know, and I have a 13 year old here who's not obnoxious yet. And I have, and I teach, I teach high school freshmen and I've taught high school sophomores before. It's like teenage boys can be obnoxious. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as Holden anyway, like it just kind of looking at his his character and then we're going to get into, um, into some of the more serious stuff about him. Um, I think you put this question down. Why is Holden's name so delayed and really only spoken by or two adults last name by the teacher he visits. He gives them both names to the ex dancer. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. I noticed those sorts of things. I, I look to see when narrators or characters are mm-hmm. named. I mean, I, I'm especially thinking about Rebecca when she's not named anything, <laughs> our, our main character. So things like that sort of pop out to me. And I guess part of it is because he's narrating, so it's not like he's going to self-name yeah, himself. And he's narrating to a doctor who we're assuming he's already spoken to or, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess he's around his friends yeah. enough that they're not necessarily going to call him by name. Because I was thinking, do I, you know, Tom, <laughs> do I really want to? rename you every time I make a comment, Tom. I don't know, Tom. So, you know, I, I do think about that, but it's just real it's it's almost like the suspense, like who is this kid? You're you're learning all about him, but you're holding off almost on the most intimate mm-hmm. part of him. And I think about uh, uh I know why the cage bird sings. Isn't there a segment in there about naming and the power that naming yeah, has so. that we talked about? And so when it's finally released, when he releases his, his full name to the, yeah, the 
ex-dancer. <laughs> it was on the phone. It was it was really interesting. Um, I don't know why it happened to be then, but then you're like, man, this kid's got a great name. Does it tell us anything about him? I don't know. You know, one of my, well, my best friend, when I posted that I had read this, she said, you know, hands down the best fictional character name ever. And I'm like, that's true. Does it tell us anything about him, though? I mean, I guess all the the siblings have really interesting names, but it's almost like, yeah, it fits him. I don't know if Brett or Bob, no offense, <laughs> Brett or um, Thomas or, you know, I don't know. Any other name would fit like yeah. Holden Coffin. I mean, it's it's but the why it delays, I would just say suspense. And then perhaps it really is this like intimate moment. He's almost trying to. uh hang out with her, I don't know, sexually mm-hmm. or not. Um, but he doesn't tell the actual prostitute what his name is. He uses John yes. Steele or whatever that was. <laughs> yes. So so I'm not sure I have an, an answer yeah. I've got. I think pieces of it, but I, I think it's really interesting. I feel like it's intentional. I, I don't think that uh, Salinger yeah. just did it on a whim. Like, I'm going to delay his name to this Well, it moment. just made me think, too, about like the way he refers to other people and their names were all the guys he... Um, or most of the guys he's around, he refers to them by their last name, which is not unusual. Mm-hmm. Some guys do that, you know. Um, you know, sometimes somebody's last name becomes the name you refer to them by in that sort of friendly, familiar way. Um, and uh, but he, it's Stradlater and Ackley, you know. It's like it's not mm-hmm. whatever their first names are. Um, but then his sister and his his siblings are all their first name but the two girls who he was friends with for the most part there's like he's always using um their their first and last name like i mean it's not mm-hmm. like consistent to the whole thing he's not always referring to Jane Gallagher as Jane Gallagher but it's it comes up more than once you know in that and it, it kind of to the point where it kind of reminded me of um, uh, my so-called life where they would they had this tendency on my so-called life to refer to people by their first and last name, especially Jordan Catalano. It was like if you you could you could make a drinking game by the way people refer to their character by these teenagers refer to each other by their entire names. Um, <laughs> it'd be a serious drinking game, too. But um but yeah, so it's, I, I think it's just this, this purposeful affectation of, you know, maybe, maybe the, the affection he feels for, um, at least at first, uh, for Sally and especially mm-hmm. for Jane, um, dictates that. And then Stradlater and Ackley, it's, it's the familiarity with them as also the kind of disdain he has for them and the, um, I don't know. We always tend to our, we always tend to um, refer to our siblings by just their first names anyway. So that there's nothing out of the ordinary about that, you know. So mm-hmm. although um, you know, DB, Ali, and Phoebe, and um, I don't know. I can, we got to consider the way he thinks about them because there's some of the people that he talks about quite a bit. DB's a sellout in his mind because he was a good writer, wrote a couple of short stories, and then got hired to start being a screenwriter in Hollywood. And apparently, he's successful enough to be bringing actresses to the bringing actresses by, or at least he wants to show off to Holden, which would make him kind of a phony, you know. Um, yeah. Ali. Uh, Allie is like the real tragedy in his life. And then Phoebe, um, 
Phoebe's like, I love Phoebe. She's the spunky, sweet kid, a little sister type and little sister, literally his little sister. And, and, uh, and she like adores him. Let's start with Phoebe and then we'll get to Allie. Allie, because like I, I look at Phoebe and she's like got these, you know, the, the scene where she shows up on the steps of the Met with the suitcase. It's just, it's, it's cute, and it's one of those many times where I feel bad for Holden because it's just like she's so sweet. And you, you know, um, what do you think of her? I think she's really the only one in the family now that can pull him back mm-hmm. from the ledge. I think if he were to do anything, which he almost did, of course, he's going to run away, though. I don't know if he would have followed through with it or, you know, any sort of thing. It would it would be her that would pull him back, I think. So she she's also smart. Mm-hmm. She is smart and wise, I think, for her years. And, and she knows right away, even though he's lies constantly about getting picked out she is able to Mm -hmm. pick that out really quickly and uh, punishes him for it to a certain extent and just little things body language wise is really able to are little things are really able to get to him like her turning her back to him or saying shut up which he, he did not like to hear that from her and I think from that and, and other scenes as well, I know there's a question about principles that I put there. I think we get to almost the heart of uh-huh. Holden. Uh, you called him a good – you feel like he's a good guy at heart. I don't know that I can necessarily agree with you. I would listen to an argument that you would have to say. But I think that this is one of the reasons why he could be a good guy because he seems to really care about yeah. children and and being that catcher in the rye would be a great job for him. But he, he just really cares for Phoebe. I think through Phoebe, you get to see a different side of Holden, which you wouldn't uh, expect. I think perhaps an authentic, authentic mm-hmm. Holden, Holden that sort of drops all these guises and the lingo and um, maybe his, his angst or his angst and he's real with her. Well, I guess he doesn't drop it, but he reveals that he bears himself yeah. to her. So she's, she's a good listener. It's someone you would expect to be, you know, one of the teachers mm-hmm. you would expect to have this, but, but she seems to be one of the, the best there. But, uh, yeah, she's, <laughs> she is a lot of fun, sort of scout esque, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, uh, with how she is portrayed. But, um, yeah, I see good things in her future. I'd be interested to see what she does in the future. Oh, and it's funny how what her middle name is, like Worthington yeah. or something like that. And she writes her own. She's got like a detective novel and things going on. So, yeah, calling her cute and and um, and, and fun, yeah. I, I think, gets to her, but also small and, and or smart and wise for her. Yeah, and I, well. I like the fact that he did that with, a, with it. I think she's about eight years old and, and uh, or thereabouts. And um you know, too many times, especially in movies, they they infantilize they infantilize children to the point where it's like this kid is way too old to be acting like this, or they make them so precocious that they're like irritating. He mm. hits the right notes with Phoebe. I I find it ironic that she's the one who can pull Holden back from the edge, considering from the ledge, considering that Holden was the one who wanted protected wanted to protect her from going over the proverbial ledge. You know, yeah. and it's ironic that she's kind of the anchor for him when that's what he wants to be for her. Um, and 
yeah, no, I, I, I think the, the, the comment I made, I can't remember exactly, and I should have known this was like half an hour ago, but I don't know if good person is the right way to put it. I think he's, he's a character who displays a, a moral compass of some sort, or at least he, he has or purports to have one where he, he is trying to navigate right and wrong. Um, and, uh, in some cases it's like, you know, and, and in some, and in a lot of it is, is couched in that idea of being protective of people who he genuinely cares about and like children or Phoebe or Jane Gallagher, you know, like he, he's genuinely upset about about that whole thing um and with phoebe it's this whole and 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 the whole scene with phoebe and um toward the end too like he's so upset over how exposed she is to like the oncoming adult world in a way that he doesn't want her to be he wants to to just hold her and keep her from from going there and part of it i wonder is is ali is is because of ali's death Allie had died a couple of years earlier. He had died of, of leukemia, and you get the sense, at least from Holden. Now, we've already talked about how Holden is only so trustworthy, so we don't have a full picture of, Hol- of Allie except through Holden's view of him. And we know that he had this baseball glove that, like, it was just poems were written all over it. So it's this idea that Ali was just this very gentle soul and he was taken way too early by no fault of his own. And I don't know if Holden feels regret for that. He's certainly upset and he's certainly still grieving. Um, you know, like, do you think that how much of an effect does Ali's death have on the way he interacts with and thinks about his other siblings as well as um, other people? You know, is 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 this one of the things that contributes to the reason he is in a you know psychiatric ward? I feel like it. I, I feel like he had his first breakdown once Ali died. I think that he is in, and you mentioned this early on. I think that he's in a stage mm-hmm. of grief, and he. Is, I'm not sure which one of them, but he has not moved out of that cycle. He is just in there. And so I would say that he's deeply depressed um, because of this. I think there might be some regret me intermingled with mm-hmm. those feelings just because there is that one thing yet where he sees some, I can't remember what he sees, but it reminds me of a time that Allie asked to go with him to go do something. And yeah. he said, no. So maybe, you know, those sorts of times where Allie wanted to do something with him and he treated him, you know, as older siblings mm-hmm. often do to younger siblings of like, no, this is too much for you. So I, I, I think there is that. I don't know if it has colored his interactions with HB I think perhaps yes with Phoebe. I think maybe he cares for her more. I I, I mean he's constantly watching her when they're separated, when yeah. they're going to the zoo. I wonder how he would have interacted with her had Allie not died and she pulled this thing of you know bringing the suitcase and all that stuff. He, he might not have felt as racked inside as as he does. And with other people. I feel especially the children that he meets, which he meets more than so like the little girl with the um, helping her tie the 
shoot the laces on the yeah, ice, yeah, on the ice skates. Yeah. Sorry, I was trying to formulate that. I mean, it seems like a really inane scene, but I feel like actually that speaks a lot to who Holden is. And then there was something about, and this gets to my principal's question because I feel like he mm-hmm. has them um, when they count, especially, oh, what was it? it? He talks about basically how people treat yeah. women. Um, kind of, oh, oh, okay, I know what it is. That he feels, which, goodness, if only the whole world were filled with <laughs> Holden Caulfields, you can say bad things about him every day, you know, for 24 hours, but the fact that he, when he hears no or stop from a woman, he feels compelled to yeah. stop and listen to her no matter what. And he goes through, you know, the reasons why. So I feel like, yeah, there are some, you know, maybe these innocent care. I don't know if it's all women. I'm still kind of trying to work through that interaction with the prostitute, which was really weird. Clearly, he didn't want anything. He just wanted to mm-hmm. talk to her. So perhaps it, it, it goes with that. But yeah, any kids and maybe women with the exception of Sally. And I do wonder the funny thing about Jane is that she's lucky. She doesn't make it into That's the novel. True. He never That's sees true. her. So we have this like beautiful ideal image of who this Jane is. But I'm just like, you know, if she were to appear, it'd probably be oh, just yeah. as bad as Sally. Yeah. Um, so I think Allie has colored some of his relationships, but maybe for those that he might perceive as vulnerable. Mm. No, I think that's a good point. I, I, um, yeah, I agree with everything you said about him, him still grieving and, and how it really just is such a part of this, uh, of, of this, uh, depression that he obviously has and why he's where he is. And also the reason, one of the reasons why he wants to protect Phoebe and, and, and kids so badly because of just, you know, what's been there. Um, yeah, thinking about Sally, it is one of those things where he he called her out of nostalgia, like, oh yeah, we have friends and stuff in the same way that he wished he could have called Jane, and it turned out to be just really annoying. Like he almost regretted it like right away. With with Jane Gallagher, yeah, he's kind of putting her up on a pedestal. Although he reveals something that she told him about, like her father's an alcoholic, and it's implied that he he might be abusive. Not sexually, because he actually asked her about it and she said no, but it's very possible that he was physically or at least verbally abusive. And he never was able to truly protect her from her father, and he certainly hasn't been able to protect her from uh, Stradlater, who is clearly a date rapist, you know. So you're saying Sally? Uh, Jane, I'm sorry. Jane, Jane, right? Yeah. So okay. yeah, yeah. Just wanted to clarify. Um, so yeah, he he can't protect Jane, and he seems to be upset about that. I mean, did you get that? Does he love her? Or is he just being protective of her? I think he. The, how often he thinks about her obsessively, almost during that date of like, I, I think it is concern. Mm-hmm for her um and he i i feel like he cares for her all of the scenes that they had were i would yeah. say sweet and and nice uh because she breaks down and cries mm-hmm. at one point and he just holds her on the yeah. porch steps at one point so i, I feel like that's <laughs> keep using this word but perhaps one of the more authentic relationships that he has with yeah. somebody not as 
bear as he and Phoebe, but still I think he's able to potentially be himself and she's able to be herself. So I, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I agree. Although I feel like if he, if he confessed whatever feelings he had for her, because I think he does have feelings for her, um, Mm -hmm. it would ultimately lead to a disappointment on his part. Um, nothing yeah. against her. It's just the 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 way he is talking about her and the way he thinks about her. It, it just it, it flashes through my mind that there will be a reality that comes crashing down on him, and he'll start hating her the same way that he thinks everybody else is phony. But I don't get the feeling that he feels entitled to her the way that like Stradlater mm. would. You know, I, yeah. I think that Stradlater is this is the um, stereotypical uh, '80s teen prep school villain, Brett Kavanaugh, toxic male, and mm. um, I, I think it's a really I think that Salinger, even though that Stradlater's barely in the book, he's in there here and there, and he's in there in a couple of scenes. It's just the way Salinger describes him is just like, this guy is just an a-hole man. And, and, and he, <laughs> and, and Holden, Holden has a lot of flaws and Holden is really obnoxious and Holden might not be the type of person you want to hang around or, or hold up as a role model, but Stradlater, I think I, at least in my opinion, he's even worse. Um, cause he's yeah. more of a danger to people. What do you think? Oh, I would agree. It, it seems like as far as I could tell that, Stuff was going on in the back seat when people mm-hmm. were in the front seat. I thought, who does this? And I think um there were certain scenes where he would be saying something. I think the term was like making it, making it. I think so, yeah. And so I had to look that up. I'm like, what does that exactly mean? And she would be like, no, no, stop, that kind of thing. And, and so I think there was that connection with Holden as well. So, yeah, he's uh, – <laughs> He's sure of himself. I mean, he's got a hot bod and he's an attractive mm-hmm. male and he uses it. He uses it. And I think he just uses and trashes women as, as he sees fit. So, uh, yes, I, I please fathers protect your daughters. <laughs> keep, keep them away yeah. from this guy. Yeah. He's just, um, yeah, and and it's uh, well. The thing is, and then we're going to talk. A little, let's. I, I do want to talk about um, his principles because he does seem to have them. The scene with Sonny the prostitute and Maurice the pimp is very very odd. Now they're mm-hmm. trying to shake him down for more money. I mean, that's not the part that's odd and, yeah. and that's expected. I think that it is. Um, I think that Holden is very very confused. I think that he's trying to act kind of cool when he when Maurice says, you know, hey, I can hook you up, and Holden probably deep down doesn't want it, want it, but he's like, well, I gotta look cool in front of this guy because he's because Holden is really immature, and there's this, um, and 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 I don't know what it was like in 1949. Um, 1950, as far as the the way adolescent males thought of sex and sexuality, but by the time I was it was 15, 16 years old in 1993, 94, uh, 1970, 1993, 94, the amount of hyper sexualized imagery that boys of my generation were exposed to was 
pretty large, you know? And so the idea that um, uh, this sort of weird fantasy thing that he, you know, that maybe he thinks he's buying into it or what, it kind of puts the lie um, to that. And then, and then the, the, the other, the other thing of how like older guys are like, you know, oh, they, he must be getting so much tail at college type of thing. And where he's talking to Carl loose, it's like this weird, immature worldview that, um, I think, you know, in our case, in my generation's case, like the media kind of helped spur, like, you know, that, that idea of the, the alpha male or whatever. But when it comes down to it, like he's so immature, he just, he, he doesn't want to be with Sonny. He's more willing to just, can we just talk and then she's like you're Mm -hmm. weird and so he's like well let me just pay you and you can leave it and then she asks for more money and then that 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 escalates but i don't know i just see this this again it's it it, it ties into the sadness i feel about him because he's he doesn't know what to do what to do with himself and he and he's in over his head and um and he thinks this is how he's supposed to behave because he's just he's incredibly immature Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think, and also he's yellow, as we are told <laughs> several times. So I think that that goes into play a lot. Though I, I felt like him being yellow would have prevented him from saying, yes, send her yeah. on up. But perhaps he just felt pressured mm-hmm. in the moment. But but I think him being nervous also, like he wouldn't want to um, engage in any uh, pelvic affiliation. It's oh, interesting because he says how many times he's like had the opportunity. Like I could have, I could have made it with this girl, but when it comes down to it, you know, he's not going to. And I, I think perhaps maybe it comes from a respect. I don't know. I could be reaching here, but a respect for women somehow. Now I don't know about the dancer. I still, I wonder about that scene, but this prostitute, was his age question mark like she seemed really young he kept talking about that and um it, he almost spoke of her in his narration with sympathy or pity just like man you know what rough luck she got this dress she, her mom probably thought she was buying this dress for some yeah. nice event and here she is not doing that so yeah, I, I agree with you about immaturity. I think there is some fear. I'm hoping that, you know, with his principles that it is, you know, I, I think like, yeah. So with that whole question, you're saying that he has a moral compass. The only thing that gets me is how much of a liar mm. he is. So that's the only thing that drags his character down for me. Um, just how often he, and he is, he admits that he lies all the time. And so I just wonder like, oh man. So that's the only reason why I can't fully get on board. But I do feel like he has principles when it counts. I mean, gosh, going for perhaps the most vulnerable of society, you know, these kids and then looking out for women when they're saying no. And then, you know, this prostitute not trying to take advantage. So I think there's a lot going on. But, yeah, probably at the root is certainly the the immaturity. Now, I do have a question is do you feel like Maurice is a black man? Um. Now there There's was no, no race, race given, given, but I was trying I, to figure I out. Like, don't know, and I didn't even think about that. And I suppose it could go either way. I don't, okay. you know, I, no. I was you, you. That's the first time I ever really thought of that. Um, black people do appear in this novel. He talks about going mm-hmm. downtown to a club or two. He talks about, you know, like it, you know. So it's. 
which is uh, so it's not one of those. It's it's you know it's a novel about New York City where you see people of color. Um, when Holden is in and around his parents' place, there most of the characters are probably white, but it is the it is the Upper East Side. An area of New yeah. York City that does tend to be very white, you know, because um, the um, the the apartment where his parents live, it's like at 73rd and it's it's near the Met, you know. So it's like you know this that's money, not that black people can't have money, but you know, like just the the area sure. in it's not taking yeah place yeah in and just, like 1949, that's an area that was just very very um you know a very very white part of the city. Um, I, Maurice could be. I don't want to assign that to him, um, but at the same time, sure. it you know uh, we could play it either way. I think. I, I think you're right about he. His moral compass kind of activates where he doesn't want to take advantage of Sonny. You know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and and even even tries to pay her. You know, it's not like he turns around and tries to. You know, yeah. cheat her out of the money that he owes her. He's like, no, I'll pay you the money. Um, the the whole thing where he's talking to the, where he kind of lies about like, oh, you know, he even says he lies all the time. I, I always get that as like posturing, you know, mm. because teen boys love to, they they do that, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I could I could have been with her, yeah, I'm like, yeah, sure, you know, and it's <laughs> that's so to me because I'm very familiar with it. Um, I guess I'm evil. I guess I accept it more readily. It's just kind of, I don't know. I just, it's, it's very familiar to me. The, the, cause he's, cause of the way, the, the way the lies are, they are essentially that sort of, again, and, 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 and I think immaturity is, is a key word to describing this, this novel. Um, here is a guy who is, being thrust more and more into the adult world where he is clearly behind. And, um, you know, he is immature for his age and therefore he is not ready. He's not ready by at least a year or two. And, mm-hmm. and that's where we're, and then, and he's out in this weird adult world of New York city for the better part of two days and he's and and it's kind of scary but he he's afraid to admit that and he's afraid to admit that he's avoiding he's actually avoiding the the harsh reality of his life the fact that he flunked out of school again and he doesn't know what the hell his parents are going to do because this is like the fourth time you know and and he's really having a breakdown and nobody will talk to him you know Granted, he's not mm-hmm. the best at <laughs> he's not the best at um, communicating with these uh, people because you know Sally. He tries to talk to Sally about it, and Sally is like, "What is your problem? You are annoying me." And he's like, "Let's run away." And it's just like, "What?" And then with Carl Luce, he's just asking about his sex life, and Carl's like. What is your issue? He's like, you, he says, you need to see a psychiatrist. And then, and this is something I wanted to bring up. He wonders, he outwardly wonders, not to Carl's face, but in his, in his narration, he wonders if Carl is gay. Is that homophobia? Is that Salinger being homophobic? Is that just immaturity? Does it matter considering this was published in 1951? 
Ooh. Is that homophobia? Um, I don't think it's homophobia. The reason why I say that is because Holden thought that before this mm-hmm. instance, and he still called them up. And I think anyone who is homophobic would want to absolutely sure. not do something like that and wants to stay far away from them. Um, is that Salinger writing something in there? Uh, I don't know. I feel like it could have been way mm-hmm. worse. Like he could have written Holden to go to a drag show. I don't know if those exist in the fifties. Yeah, they probably did. Um, so I, I, I can't say. And then is this the fifties? I guess of like misunderstandings. Um, and just like pointing out to people and, and gawking. I mean, flit, I assume is apologies, kind of like our mm-hmm. version of f- when people are just like, look at that, um, that kind of thing. So I, yes, I, I think with fifties, but I don't know if I see as much, um, of homophobia in there. Uh, do you, uh, what, what do I you don't, think? I don't either. I, it's, un- it's uncomfortable. Whereas like, I think he's gay, you know, the, the, that, um, that speculation, yeah. it does make me feel uncomfortable. But I don't think that, and I, I think if it's homophobic, it's very, very casually because of it's just a product of its time. But at the same time, if you're studying this and this starts to, you start to get triggered or offended by it, I think that does open it up for like the way, A, the way people viewed homosexuality as like an issue or a problem that somebody had back around this time. And B, mm-hmm. The it, it actually could open you up to a discussion about the way boys now will accuse one another or still still accuse one another of being gay for you know as a way to insult them and things like that you know um, mm-hmm. so I think I think yeah. it's a good it's it's a good point for discussion if it's something that like you notice you notice if you're reading the story and studying it they're like you know and and you you find yourself um, uncomfortable or triggered by, by that particular scene. And then, and then there's like later on, because like I said, I I think Holden is just really immature. He's sexually immature. He's emotionally immature. I think that's, I think that's what he's trying to show with, with the Sally Hayes date because it's disaster. It's a disaster. They go to the movie show. He likes it, but then they go to, (laughs) they go to, they go to Rockefeller center and the reason that they go ice skating at Rockefeller Center is because they can rent like skating skirts or something. And Sally, he's like, I know she wanted to wear the skirt. And, he, and then he says something, and it's and honestly, it's a very realistic teenage boy thing to say. I I let her rent the skirt because I saw her how her ass looked in the skirt, you know, or something like that, you know, like so he can check out her butt. And it's like. I can actually see not I not that I'm picturing Sally Hayes's butt, but I can see Holden Caulfield being like thinking that I'm like yeah I can check her out, but it's just he just starts going off about it like I don't know it's it, it it's such a disaster and and I don't I think that he is it, it, between Sally and the whole like let's run away together thing and the whole like badgering Carl loose about how many girls he's, he's having sex with at Columbia is like, it shows you how sexually immature he is too. And the Chinese mm-hmm. woman that they bond in their souls. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm, I'm skipping a little bit. I want to come to the nuns for, but I do want to talk a little bit about it's, it's toward the end there. And it's one of the last people he encounters before he, before he and Phoebe have that day at the, at their carousel, but it's Mr. Antolini. What do you think mm-hmm. Mr. Antolini is doing? Oy. To, to, to give you some time here, the context is that Holden sneaks out of his parents' apartment. He has nowhere to go. He remembers Antolini. He gives him a call. He's like, yeah, come over. We're up. He and his wife, I think they give him a little food. They give him some hospitality. They give him a place to crash on the couch. And in the middle of the night, Holden, or near dawn, Holden wakes up and Mr. Antolini is patting his head. Holden takes it as a sexual advance. Um, so what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I I'm very torn about this scene because on the one hand, you know, whatever the kid is feeling when this is like you need to honor and respect that. So if Holden felt uncomfortable and felt like those uh, I don't know touches were untoward, then we need to be on his side, whether we trust or believe him or not, because those were his feelings. With Antolini, I just thinking about this man. So he's had interactions with Holden's family. He's got a wife and he also helped scoop up the dead body of a suicide mm-hmm. victim. However, uh, the wife is suspicious if only in Holden's characterization, like, oh, is, is she a beard and is Mr. Antolini a flit? Um, I, I, I don't know. And then she goes to bed, like all of that stuff. And he's never had, I think this sort of intimate, um, interaction with him, intimate meaning like in his house at night, like that sort of thing. And Antolini is really sauced. And while I've never gotten to that extent, I do know that, you know, alcohol kind of like loosens people's Mm -hmm. inhibitions. So the whole thing is really suspicious. And uh, the the thing, though, that throws me off is this is kind of like doubt. Did he or did he not? Is that Mr. Antolini keeps like you're a very, very strange kid. Like he's you know, like you're just I'm just patting you on the head kind of thing. And then even later, Holden thinks back to him and is like, oh, I wonder if I made a bigger deal out of it. Uh, so I guess knee jerk, even though it's a suspicious, suspicious thing, I'm just going to go with Holden because those were his feelings and say that ye- it was inappropriate no matter what was going on. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just is a bizarre, a bizarre scene. You know, when I think of this book, I think, have you read Perks, the Perks of a I Wallflower? I have read the Perks of Being Wallflower. I'm reminded of that. Yeah. I, it seemed like those two, these two are, are compatible. Yeah. So I kind of think about uh, that lead character as well, who is mm-hmm. sexually abused too. Although we don't um, realize that until or, spoiler alert, we don't realize that until ooh, the end of the novel. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So uh, that will be my my answer to that. Yeah, in fact, a persevering wallflower owes a lot to this book, and we'll so we'll talk about the book's influence. Um, in a way, that might be that might be one for a future episode. By the way, um, uh, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Like, I, I I believe Holden, and I mm-hmm. believe his suspicions, but at the same time, I think Antolini would say that oh, this was it was a caring gesture, like he, it was a fatherly type of gesture. 
like, you know, patting mm-hmm. him on the head because, you know, like, hope you feel better, that type of thing. Um, but there is a weirdness. And, you know, it's not it is not unlike somebody who knows a, f- a family member, a family friend or something like that to sure. be the abuser in that regard. So, so, oh, yeah, it, it, yeah. not that there's a profile for these things, but it's not uncommon. So, yeah, so, you know, maybe, maybe Holden feels, even Holden feels he overreacted, but you're right. It's, um, and, and again, but it's also an example again of him seeing this danger or this mm-hmm. scariness presented to him in the adult world, like he doesn't know what to think. Um, yeah. And that whole, I mean, how it is written or how we see through his mind of, Mr. Antolini, like, waiting with him for the elevator and, like, what? And that whole thing is really creepy, even if you ignore everything else. Like, I think I would just be like, okay, hurry back, Holden, and then shut the door. But, no, he's waiting. Yeah. Waiting and watching. It's pretty – it's 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 suspicious. <sighs> he's like, what the hell are you doing? He says, nothing. I'm simply sitting here admiring. What are you doing anyway? I don't know what the hell to say. I, I mean, I was embarrassed – as hell. And Antolin's like, how are you, how about keeping your voice down? I'm simply sitting here. I have to go anyway. I said, boy, I was nervous. Was I nervous? I started putting on my damn pants in the dark. Carly get them on. I was so damn nervous. I know more damn perverts at school as and all than anybody you ever met. And they're always being perverty when I'm around. You have to go where? And then, you know, he's trying to act casual. I left my bags at the station, yada, yada, yada. And Antolini's trying to like, do damage control here. He's like, get back in the bed. I'm going to be, I'm going to bed myself. The money will be there safe and sound. You know, like he's like, you know, Holden's worried about the money he has and whatever. And he's like, no, I got to go. And he says, Mr. Antolini was not sitting now in the big chair, a little ways away from me, watching me. It was dark and all, and I couldn't see him so hot, but I knew he was watching me. All right. He was still boozing too. I could see his trusty highball glass in his hand. You're a very, very strange boy. I know what I said. I didn't even look around much for my tie. So I went without, Without it, goodbye, sir. I said thanks a lot, and no kidding. And that's where he, yeah, you're right. He walks into the elevator, and all he says is that business about me being a strange, very strange boy. And yeah, it's almost like Antolini's covering for himself by projecting it onto Holden. You know, like you're kind of the problem mm-hmm. here, so I'm I'm with you. So yeah, mm-hmm. um. So at various points, and we've only got a few questions here, um, at various points, Holden laments the phoniness of the adult world. And phony is the at yeah, through, oh, okay, through, through 75 the to 80 percent of the novel. <laughs> phony is probably the one word that everybody remembers about his his narration, right? It just comes up over and over and over yeah. again. But at, at one point. He runs into a group of nuns. He's at a diner. He's eating breakfast. He's waiting for his date with Sally. And he decides that they are authentic for their selfless way of giving. And then he even gives them for money. So why the nuns? Is it their purity? Is it truly their selfishness? Or is this just an example of Holden's immature view of the adult world? I don't think so. I think he is or there is sort of a veneer of religion that I think is 
glossing that's not really the right word that's making everything shine and glimmer for him in Mm -hmm. this situation but i think for them they are the one example that they're doing acting and being exactly what and who they say they are and that is not true of everyone else that he encounters uh, now, he doesn't know them, know them. <laughs> so who knows if being in their company for longer than that, uh, repeated instances, if he would change his mind. But that, I mean, that scene was about as long as his scene with Sally, yeah, I would pre- say. Yeah. And he he did not have anything really negative to say. He may have felt sorry for them at one point, I think. But, yeah, I think I wonder what it would look like if it were the same type of person but not a Mm. nun because i just wonder if that adds a a level to it like already kind of there was this um uh, i don't know this exterior that's like oh you know i should trust even though he's not a religious Mm -hmm. person which is really interesting but, yeah, I, I would say that they are. They're anti-phony. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing exactly what they say they are doing. And uh, I think he respects them I for that. I do, too. He certainly does take – he does He does certainly break the second commandment quite a bit, I will say that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I agree with you because he offers up the also the contrast. Uh, he juxtaposes the way his mother and her friends raise money for charity, which goes to a good oh, cause, yeah, but it's yeah. all performative. And I, funny enough, like this, this reminded me of I actually used this scene in a paper in college for the theology class I had to take because um, we had to write about our uh, service learning opportunity, and I wrote how listening to my classmates gush over their this is me being really cynical gush over their experiences in this in the way that they did seemed really performative and mm-hmm. and I had gone I think I did my service learning at like a tutoring center down in Baltimore like like in the area where like they filmed the wire like that part of Baltimore and uh, just was an after school program and I sit there and help kids with their homework and stuff like that and it was just like you know the kids were nice and everything but I just remember like you know contemplating the authenticity of my peers because they seemed so in like, you know, and maybe, maybe I was just being a cynical pastor. They really did genuinely feel that way, but it seemed like they were putting on an act to show off like, you know, especially a couple of them who I'd seen in other contexts. It was like, yes, we realize how great you are. But so that was my Holden Caulfield moment in college. Um, mm. I do think though, this does contribute to what is a very binary way of thinking on his part, especially when it comes to the adult world or the world in itself. And that there's like a good and a bad, and he doesn't really see a lot of the gray in terms of the way people are. And I think that's, again, that's just the immaturity speaking, you know, that eventually you start to see the, the, now I think he's accurate about how much of a, how I, how um, you know, how awful and dangerous to women Stradlater is. But, and I think that he's accurate about the nuns. And I think what you were just saying totally applies. But at the same time, I also think that because of his immaturity, he tends to be very um, black and white, no pun intended, because they're nuns, black and white about yeah. uh, about the way he looks at the world like that. So let's talk a little bit about the ending 
And then we'll, we'll start wrapping this thing up because we are running a little longer than I thought we would. So he goes to see Phoebe at school. He sees the uh, graffiti on the wall. Why is this so triggering? And is it obvious that Holden has a panic attack at the school? Because he, like, passes out, and I took that as he had, like, a panic attack or something. Oh, yeah, he does. He catches himself, doesn't he? So why is it so triggering to see that graffiti written on the school wall? I think it gets to the innocence of the Mm -hmm. age and that he wouldn't want that sort of language in front of children. And I just, ironically, I just read a, a series of essays by, shoot, Nick Hornby. And at one point he talks, he gives a quote from... Where was it? Oh, why the last man? And so it was like, you can F my trip or something like that. And so he made a comment. He actually talks later on about or earlier about uh, J.D. Salinger. But he says, like, if I, you know, if I were a young kid, I would know one of those words, which was like you, you can or something like that. And then if any of the kids would find it, you know, they would talk about it and it would get or am I mixing things up there? Is that what happens in this novel? <laughs> the quote but i did but anyway so i was just thinking like oh that's probably what would have happened in this school like they would have had to explain what this was and tittering wait does that happen in this one where someone wouldn't know what the um the word was and then they would all have to explain what it was and they would kind of like out of control but anyway, so I, I was kind of I was thinking about that. Maybe I'm merging the two stories together. Uh, definitely not the quote, but I know that's why the last man. And I, yeah, I think it's just the innocence. It gets back to how he's been treating these children all along, especially Allie and Phoebe and his role, his self-imposed role as a, a catcher in the rye. And so to see that that ugly word, which he n- never uses, like you would expect him to be using that sort of language. To see it in an elementary school, I think, gets yeah. him really fired up. Um, why he has a panic attack, I, who, uh, I, yeah, it triggers him somehow. I don't know if it's like, uh, you know, this stuff is, is bleeding through to the, the innocence, like this mm-hmm. terrible stuff is bleeding through this adult stuff and, and I can't do much to stop it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Like it really get really gets to him, um, which is is interesting when several characters tell him to stop swearing so yeah. much. Uh, yeah, yeah. But like he, um, so he sees it, and you're right. He starts seeing it. Like all the little kids would have to see it, and they'd wonder what the heck it meant. And so yeah, there and his yeah, yep. And and some dirty kid would tell him all cockeyed naturally what it meant and how they think about it and even worry about it. I figured it was some perverty bum that sneaked into the school late at night to take a leak or something and wrote it on the wall. I kept picturing myself catching him at it, and how I'd smash his head on the stone steps who was good and goddamn dead and bloodied. But I knew, too, that I wouldn't have the guts to do it. I knew that. That made me even more yeah, depressed. Which is interesting because it's very likely that one of the older kids might have written it on there. Like, you know, like he's just projecting this weird fantasy of like some really mean person as the specter of adulthood coming in or something. And then and then later on, he sees another one and he says, um, I tried to rub it off with my hand again, but this one was scratched on. It wouldn't come off. It was hopeless anyway. If you had a million years to do it, you couldn't rub out even half the FU signs in the world. It's impossible. 
And yeah, I think it's triggering because he's just finally like it's overwhelming him how he can't he can't be the catcher in the rye. He he's just so overwhelmed by the reality of things and that Phoebe's gonna grow up and you know, he and, 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 and around that time too he talks about how he talks to Allie. You know, Allie, don't let me fall or whatever he says. It's uh Oh, with this crossing yeah, the street. Yeah. And it's just like it. So everything, it's just. And this is, I think, this is what I really like about the ending of the novel, or the it, before we get to the flashback into the. Um, before we get back to the, the, the flash, flash forward, forward, I think just the the way that all of this this panic in him picks up, and the way Salinger expresses that through the various scenes and the, and the narration, everything. Um, I think it's really, really well written that way because you get that sense of it becomes way more urgent on that last morning than it had been previously. And maybe it's because he saw Phoebe and he was going to see her and it's all of a sudden it's like it's building, it's building, it's building. And he's just it, 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 it overwhelms him. Um, now, neither of us are psychologists or psychiatrists. But that won't stop us from diagnosing Holden. What do we diagnose Gosh. him with? What do you think is wrong with him? Well, that's a terrible way to uh, put it because there's something wrong with you if you have mental health issues. What do you think is the is the issue at hand, though? Yeah, I would say anxiety um, and depression. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's a manic depressive, but definitely, yeah, depression. And anxiety. I agree. I also wonder, and having recognized this in in various people, I wonder if he has a ADHD. We though the way the narration goes, and I mentioned this earlier, like he goes off on these tangents, and he'll eventually come back around. But it, it's that it it's like he's ping ponging all over the place, and everything connects to the story he's telling, but there's no straight line in the story here, except for the chain of events, which is why I failed oratory. Yeah. And they didn't, ADHD was not a, something that quote existed back in 1949, you know, I mean, it existed, but you know, <laughs> not in the way that we, you know, we code for it, so to speak in, in educational material. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, like, Maybe that's one of the issues. And anxiety, depression, those things come, can come hand in hand with it, especially in a world that does not totally mm-hmm. understand who you were. Like, um, he is, I think, neurodiverse is the term I've been hearing quite a bit. But take new terminology away. I'm like, yeah, he has like, I don't know. Like, it's just, it is that sort of like, the, the stream of consciousness narrative just like speaks to me that way. And because he's associated, it's everything is like this weird association game he has with different things. And there's a flashback to Sally Hayes and him or Jane Gallagher and him. And then he goes off on the thing with the nuns and he thinks about his mom and, you know, and, and all these things. And, oh, man. And then these, are, you know, it's just it's it's all over the place. And honestly, that's one of the way, reasons I like the novel so much, because it's so to me, that seems very realistic of how it's just of how tangential it is and how much he's, he was willing to write a character that is just like, is, is so nonlinear in the way he's thinking about things and yet drags himself 
back to, okay, where was I, you know? I don't know. What do you think? Am I, am I totally off base here or? No, no, I can get it. I mean, the frustrating thing is that he's gotten kicked out of so many schools, but the parents don't really ask the question Mm -hmm. why. And so, you know, at this point in time, probably after the second one, maybe he would have been tested and then we would have had, you know, good reasons or gotten him some like academic help or something like that. So that's really frustrating to look back and and see all that. But no, no, I agree Um, with you. Okay, last two questions. What what can we learn from a character like Holden, or do you think we've already answered that question? I think we've answered it to a certain mm-hmm. degree, but I think, for me anyways, I think it's that we need to, even though we may look at someone and see that they are, feel that they are privileged, like yeah. from a very um, definition demographically the speaking word, yeah. i suppose yeah i think that we oftentimes overlook those people because of their privilege and think well they're, they're clear you know whatever they have you know whatever issue they can get over it you know they don't have the problems i have but we don't know the full story of someone and so that that is why you still you still have to attempt to show uh, empathy or compassion for everyone because you don't know their full story and um, just like on the outside you don't you don't want to be judged on the outside Mm. as well so why would you be doing it so I think that's one thing we can learn from him because I feel like people may not like him because he is this privileged character background wise but he has some um, issues that like we really need to lean in and and understand and and learn from and so he deserves a fair shake in literature is he the best literary character no but i i think he gives us something and at a time that i don't think that was really coming out um Mm-hmm. So I I think he deserves some respect and empathy as well, just like other characters deserve. I think it's too. I think you're right. I think it's too easy to be dismissive of him because of that, and I I wouldn't I wouldn't be dismissive of him, um, especially since I think we can learn a lot about what goes on inside the head, you know, in somebody's head. So, and I think your point about empathy is spot on. Now you would put this one in. Is this the first young adult YA novel? Does it unknowingly set the standards? And is this novel a victim of its own reputation? I think that was my addition to the question. Yeah, so that's, that's my addition to the question. Um, what yeah. do you think about what do you think about that? Yeah, you said is it a victim yeah. of his reputation? I would say yes, if only because someone who goes in and out of the building twice a day of the building that I work. He saw me reading the book and said, I don't, I don't get what the big deal mm-hmm. is about that book. So yes, it is a victim because I think people are boisterous about it, whether really positive or really negative. And so then people read and then they might be apathetic towards it yeah. or not. I, this just with this third time, because when I read it the first two times, I was not reading YA literature. And even now, it's not like I read it all the time, but if I find something interesting, and there's some good YA uh-huh. lit out there. So sometimes it gets a bad rap, I feel like. I felt like, wow, is this the precursor for what we would, you know, call quote unquote YA, where you've got this young man. Um, there is proper angst or angst. Um, it, yeah, sort of, I, I think you use the word mm-hmm. archetype, sort of setting that there. Um, 
And plot wise, maybe it doesn't have as much, you know, of a plot as as other YA na- novels have, because it's mostly just, you know, him romping around yeah. the city for a couple of days. But I think it's, you know, if it's not Romeo and Juliet, because that could be YA, too, then I think it might be this kind of setting the uh, unofficial standards of what YA could be. Yeah, I think your use of the word. um Oh, I, I lost the word. But the the idea that it's a, a precursor, a that's precursor? the word I was looking for, a precursor, um, and that it unknowingly set the standards, I think, is is important to make because Salinger wrote it for an adult audience, but kids, mostly, yeah. the kids, teenagers mostly read it. Um, historically speaking, the from what I remember studying why I lit in college, in, in grad school, very often the novel that's actually credited with being the first young adult novel is The Outsiders <gasps> by S.E. Hinton. Yeah, oh, it's, really? It's, it's really one of the, okay. it's, if not the first, it is one of the first, it, it tends to be. And that's only a couple, that's only a little bit about maybe a decade later. This does set up some archetypical characters and situations, and there are characters who go through this type of angst, this type of scenario, this type of journey and they they are of wide wide diversity um, in terms of the makeup in young adult literature, and they owe something on some level to this novel because this novel did set a standard, even though Salinger wasn't necessarily trying to for future young adult characters. But yes, I also think it's a victim of its own reputation because I think it's been held up as, you know, I think it's become a canon work in high school literature courses. So it gets, it gets held up as the example for everything when, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's showing its age. It's 60 years old this year. No, Mm -hmm. 70. Do the math, Panneries. It's 70 years old this year. You know, any book that's 70 years old is going to have some wear and tear on it. Um, Mm -hmm. and it also has the, it also, there's a lot more out there than there was back in 1951. Even in 1993, there wasn't, you know, there was not as much quality young adult literature as out there as there is now, you know? So I think because of that and because of the rise of the genre, you know, it, it, it gets knocked down a peg because other things have come out. Um, and in some cases rightfully replaced it and it's sort of, you know, as sort of the go-to thing. But, um, but yeah, and then that kind of leads into the last question we always ask. Do you think it's required reading? I'll go with yes. I, I do think that it, now I did not read mm-hmm. it in high school. I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to read it in high school. And the place that I worked at did not read it in mm. high school though i suppose <laughs> <laughs> i can understand why so yeah i i think so i think there are lessons to be learned from yeah. holden and if i i think good conversations can come from it but it would be interesting in how you're going to pair it well i mean i imagine you'd put it in a an american lit yeah. course but it would just be interesting to 
contrast Holden with, I don't know, Raisin in the Sun or something like that. You know, like, let's look at these polar opposite mm-hmm. type, you know, type of characters and, and um, living conditions, social, social status, things uh, like that. I would actually um, pair it with uh, the novel that comes to mind was from a couple of years ago called The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo, who's um, I think her her uh, protagonist was. Puerto Rican or half Puerto Rican, half black and living in the Bronx. So, it, I mean, oh, granted, okay. it, was, it was the 2010s. So to so, be so, as yeah, close as yeah, possible, yeah, potentially. The juxtaposition is there because uh, A Reason in the Sun yeah, is yeah. – the story is a little different. So. Yeah, well, I was just thinking about uh, no, no, the I type of people, I, I suppose, I and they're all like social yeah. status. Yeah, yeah, but just to contrast it somehow, basically not a, a privileged white yeah. young man. <laughs> what can you do there? So, yeah, so I will say yes. I, I think it is if you're doing a genre study of this. Um, I, I mean, I would certainly, I would certainly say, yeah, you should read this. But at the same time, there's like an asterisk there, and and there's an asterisk there as I have on other works of like this that are held up, in that it has, Always. it's not the only reading, and I think that's what yeah. people misinterpret sometimes, that uh-huh. you know you get assigned this book in high school and they act like it's a big deal and everything. It's like yeah, but then go read other books like this, or. Start now and work your way backward to see where a lot of this comes from. You mentioned the perks of being a wallflower, and I knew students who loved that, and they hated the catcher in the rye. And I'm like, or they love John Green, and I like John Green, but come on, like Stephen Jabosky and John Green owe like half their career to J.D. Salinger, you know. And mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that as an insult to either of them. There's so much that comes from the catcher in the rye that's in the perks of being a wallflower, and like an abundance of Catherines or looking for Alaska, et cetera. So I think it's a necessary read if you're looking at this type of novel, because you, you do want to see, you want to see where all this comes from, you know, it's like watching citizen yeah. Kane. Like you, you've, you've got to see that movie at some point because you, you will get so much, you know, and it's, so it, it ends up being an American classic because of that. Um, and I think it, it's reputation holds up, but I would not stop there. I would branch out and find other, and there's a lot of really good YA literature out there of this, of this, uh, the, uh, the type of story. So. Mm-hmm. So we have one Facebook comment from Robert Ward on episode 49, which was Ethan Frome, everybody's favorite winter tale. He says, I have little less than half hour left in the episode, but I enjoyed it. I liked the book and was curious what it was that caused such a dislike in Tom. I could see his reasoning. I may have hated it myself at that age for, for the same reason. Personally, I liked the novella for its tragic love story. It's definitely a downer, though. I purposely didn't want to develop. I purposely didn't want to delve into his motives and tried to take it at face value. As for the ending, I really liked it and thought it was an interesting twist as tragic star-crossed lovers. You mentioned Romeo and Juliet. Take a drink. And I think I mentioned it before, but I found the Ethan from ending stronger than David Hewson's novel of Romeo and Juliet. Take a drink. <laughs> Discovering the status of Ethan and Maddie felt a little gut-wrenching and heartbreaking for a romantic that wanted the souls to stay together, whereas with Houston's Romeo is dead, but Juliet lives on. Oh, Tom, would you like that? Mm. 
I guess I dislike Houston's attempt at tragedy, but hope for Juliet. You gotta commit. I don't want one party to live and thrive, keep the souls together, or depict the crushing sense of loss. He also said regarding... <laughs> he also said regarding Tessa the Durbervilles, oh boy, this is going to be fun. And then I saw it a week ago and desperately had hoped that it meant it was a poor project and not the show. I know I've hated some books. There but... you go, Alan. Oh. Yeah, so thank you. Heavens yeah, above. Thank you, Robert. Um, again. I hope we get lots of feedback on yeah, that. Yeah, I do too. I, I you know... Um, I I like I like reading f- people's feedback and, and comments and stuff like that. So I, I appreciate I appreciate all your comments, Robert. And we always like love hearing from you. So keep it going. And and those of you out there, again, new episodes, old episodes. We love love the feedback. Um, but we are at the end of this episode, and uh, we'll be back in another month. And uh, that leads me to ask you, Stella, uh, what are we reading for next <laughs> month? Yes. So earlier I this week, last week, I asked Tom how he felt about me choosing some excerpts, and he said he was okay. So I have the go-ahead for this. So we're going to read four excerpts from Translated, if you want, Ovid's okay. Heroides. And the Heroides are epistles. They're in epistle form, and they're basically heroines writing to their loves. So they could be female characters in classical literature, or they could be a female character in a myth. So the four that we're going to read, and you can Google and get this free um, and without any um, – it's – what's that called when you're not Copyright cheating? Violation? It is – nope. That's what you're not okay. committing. It is – Public domain? free probably yeah it's public domain so you can find them if you look for them so we're going to do epistle there are 21 of them we're just doing four epistle number one which is penelope to ulysses um epistle number seven dido to aeneas epistle 12 medea to jason and epistle 17 helen to paris and these were all ones i sent a list Mm -hmm. to tom and said tell me which women you don't recognize and so we have those four so what i'll do in the next episode when of course i'll talk about you know who all of it is and what these are before we do each of the epistles also just give like a brief background as to the story so in case you don't know who mm. Medea is or penelope or how you know i'll give you and we've done yeah. the it so that works well with dido but we'll so basically you are getting the other side okay. of the story from some of these women and several of them have been left like they're, they're just left on their own so you get to see what that loss feels like so i'm excited for that again english public domain you can easily find those but if you want a challenge you can always get the the latin and translate <laughs> in preparation yeah. but they are in meter so they are technically Mm. poems so i think this is our first time that we are actually doing poetry on the show as well so an interesting like this will be really different i think for our um uh, what i will try to do if if i remember to do this enough i can find them easily is uh put post to our our website and maybe even facebook a link to uh, public domain copies so if anybody who's interested in reading along with us and, and doesn't know where to look, um, you'll be able to find them easily. All right. There you go. Yeah. And you can there's definitely you could buy them or hopefully the co- the library would mm-hmm. have something. So Loeb's 
which are um, wonderful. Classicists love them. On the left is the Latin and on the right is the translation. They have uh, the, I think they pair the Herodes with Ovid's Amores. And then there are also um, English translated like Penguin, yeah, you know, yeah, soft cover ones that you can get. So if you're wanting to have the full experience of these, just be sure to check because some of them do half of them and or do excerpts like we're doing. So just be sure you have the, the same numbers that okay. we're going to cover. All right. Well, thank you. Um, and we're looking forward to that. Uh, and like I said, feedback, Facebook likes, all that stuff, share us out. And uh, as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And if you're ever, <laughs> I can't even think of one for this. I was going to say something about if you ever want to go on a carousel ride, just be sure that you don't pay for it with your own money. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two, that's too true. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.